I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, members, guests. Uh, it is indeed a festive day here at CBC as uh, we celebrate the grace of God in the lives of the baptismal candidates. And of course, we rejoice uh, in the salvation that we have experienced through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so welcome to all of those of you who are gathered with us. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament to a, a minor prophet named Habakkuk. Uh, we are today concluding the book of Habakkuk, uh, and uh, w this is the great culminating statement of the book, the prayer of Habakkuk. We will look at the entirety of chapter 3. So turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, and then we will read to the end to verse 19. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigianoth, which most scholars think is a musical notation. Perhaps it was the melody to which this prayer uh, was sung or chanted. Here's the prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the mountains. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow down before you 
and we confess that you are incomparable. There is no one like you. There is no one as majestic, exalted, wise, just, powerful as you are. Father, grant us, your people, to tremble with a holy joy at the display of your majesty. Let us, like so many in Holy Scripture, behold your majesty and stand in awe of you. Deepen, O Lord, the fear of the Lord in our hearts to the extent that we have small, unbiblical views of you, Father. Use your word this morning to expand our hearts and minds, to stand silent in your holy presence, adoring you for the majestic God that you are. Father, we pray that the display of your glory in your word would leave its mark upon our lives. Teach us, Lord, not to fear man, not to fear circumstances, but to fear you and to know the joy of walking in the fear of the Lord. Accomplish your purposes in our midst this morning. And Father, glorify your name in our midst, we ask. Amen. Uh, several years ago, I was teaching a class and I had a student who had a tattoo of a skeleton. I think it was on his arm. Must have been. It was visible. Uh, skeleton. Uh, and it was a well-dressed skeleton. Uh, tuxedo, I think. Top hat. I don't remember the details. But it was intriguing enough that I was provoked to asking him, what does that mean? Uh, and this was an individual who had seen war, who had seen uh, difficult things. And he said something like, death is a gentleman. Because when we die, all the nightmare and difficulty of this world just comes to an end. Uh, no, having gotten a chance to know him, he wasn't quite as bleak as that, uh, which is good. But, but, that, but his position was one of fundamentally of hopelessness and despair in the face of the darkness of this world. He saw the darkness, he saw the misery, and he said, there's just no hope. And that raises a question. How do we face the darkness of this world without despairing, without losing hope? When we see the terrible things that happen to others and to us, how do we remain cheerful and hopeful and strong? Well, Habakkuk is tremendously helpful in answering this question. Uh, the book revolves, as we've seen, around two of Habakkuk's complaints, which revolve around the justice of God. He looks at society in Judah, and he sees the wicked oppressing the righteous. And he says, Lord, why aren't, why aren't you doing anything? The Lord says, I am doing something. I'm actually bringing the Babylonians. Oh, no, they're worse than we are. That's not just. Uh, God, what are you doing? And so God responds to uh, Habakkuk's complaints at two levels. When he explains that while justice isn't coming as quickly as Habakkuk might like, it is coming. Uh, this is an explanation of how God is just. But Habakkuk also explains how we should live in the midst of a dark world. Uh, and, and, and we see this especially clearly in this prayer at the end of the book. Habakkuk's response to the Lord teaches us how we ought to respond to the darkness in the world around us. Uh, and we ought to respond three ways. We are to stand in awe of God. We are to stand in awe of God. Number two, we are to wait for him to rescue. Wait for him to rescue. And number three, we are to rejoice in God. How do we respond and uh, remain hopeful in a dark world? We stand in awe of God. We wait for his promise to be fulfilled. And we rejoice in him. The prayer begins with a petition on the part of the prophet to the Lord. He asks that God would do in his day what he has done in the past. 
He says, God, I know your works in the past, your mighty acts of salvation for your people. And I am praying that you would renew and revive that work. Just as you once liberated your people through great acts of judgment on Egypt and brought them singing out of captivity, God, won't you do the same work again in my day? Won't your judgment fall on the Babylonians that your people might go free? In wrath, remember mercy. The idea here is that as God brings down wrath and judgment on Israel's enemies, on the fierce Babylonians, he will at the same time liberate his people through that act of judgment. That's the prayer. God, as you have acted in the past, as you have judged the nations and liberated your people, act according to that pattern, bring judgment on Babylon. And then we are given this majestic vision of the glory of God in verses 3 through 15. It's fascinating to me that God's answer fundamentally in Habakkuk and Job to the problem of evil, why is there injustice, why did these terrible things happen, it's in a sense not an answer, it, um, it, it's, it's him. God is the answer. God says, look at me. You want an answer? Look at me. Look at my majesty. Look at my power. That's where the, the focal point needs to be. So we get this display of God's glory. God is compared, as we'll see, to a warrior who fights for his people, fights their enemies. And the section begins with a reference to verse 3, Temen uh, and Mount Paran. This would have been the region south of Judea. And it, these uh, places would have evoked uh, the wilderness wa uh, wanderings of Israel with God, where God fed his people and protected them in the wilderness. It would have evoked the giving of the law at Sinai. And the idea is that God is once again coming in power from the south to Judea. He's coming and his majesty is displayed in terms of brightness, a brightness that envelops everything. His brightness was like the light. The sun's bright light is eclipsed by the glory of the Lord as he shines. He is blindingly dazzling. We are told that pestilence and plagues come before and after him. He is sending affliction and judgment upon his enemies. He is unleashing the forces of nature to bring judgment on those who oppose him. And then we're told that he shakes the nations. He shakes the earth, perhaps through an earthquake. The eternal mountains were scattered. Everlasting hills sank low. In your mind, when you have an image of permanence, what's that image? For many of us, it's a mountain, ancient mountain that has been there for time immemorial, it will continue to be there. That is a symbol of permanence and stability. But when God shows up, those mountains crumble and fall. The hills are flattened by his presence. The only thing that is truly unchanging, permanent, strong in this universe is God who alone is eternal and unchanging. He is the permanence, the security that we seek. Then in verse 7, the nomads that lived between Judea and the south, uh, the Midianites, as they see God approaching in his majesty, they do what the mountains do. They tremble at the coming of the Lord. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. All of creation is shaken by his coming. The people see him and are terrified by the approach of the Lord. In verse 9, God, the warrior, he's being compared to a, a fighter here, a warrior. He takes out the sheath from his bow and calls for many arrows. God is taking out the weapons of judgment. He's taking out his bow and arrow, and he's getting ready to fire. 
Verse 11, we're told that God goes into battle, the light of your arrows as they sped, the flash of his glittering spear is evident. And how do the sun and moon respond when they see God going into battle, wielding his spear, wielding his bow and arrow? The sun and moon stood still in their place. It's as if the sun and moon are frightened by what they see, astonished at the glory of the Lord, and they don't have the audacity to do anything but sit in paralyzed silence and gaze upon the majesty of God. Then God comes in verse 12 in his fury and anger and pours out his wrath on the earth. The images of God stomping on his enemies. Threshing in the ancient world would have involved oxen going around in a circle, to stomp on the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. They would have gone around and around just stomping, stomping, stomping. And that's the image of judgment here. God is going forth and he's threshing the earth. He is stomping on evildoers. And he's doing so, verse 13, for the salvation of his people. He brings judgment on his enemies and rescues his people. Behold your God. The earth shakes. His brightness eclipses the sun. The forces of nature are unleashed according to his purposes. He rescues his people and judges his enemies. Behold your God. We are meant to respond the way Habakkuk does in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. When Habakkuk has this vision of the majesty of God on display and all of creation being shaken, he is in a sense paralyzed with dread. He is too astonished to speak as he beholds the glory of God. If you don't want to fear evildoers, if you don't want to tremble at the wicked, then fear God and tremble at his majesty, and you will have the heart of a lion in hard and difficult times. The person who knows the majesty of God, who sees his power and greatness, and that reality is imprinted upon the heart and the mind, is going to have strength and firmness even when everybody is panicking. The final answer, the fundamental answer to the fear of man and living in dark times is to know the glory of the Lord and to be still in his presence. Frankly, we need to recover the sense of the majesty of God, don't we? Uh, one of the problems, I think, is that we rightly stress the acceptance that we have before God through Jesus. His shed blood covers all of our sins, praise God. But we celebrate rightly the acceptance, the intimacy, the access that we have with God, and then wrongly conclude that God must be more or less the way that we are. He's welcomed us freely, so he must be a little wiser, a little more righteous, but more or less the way that we are. And that is a false inference. We should be amazed that God accepts us because he's the Holy One of Israel. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, classic now, uh, is an Anglican theologian, now deceased. He captures this problem very well, and he writes, today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective. But this is not the God of the Bible. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. And all its constant stress on God's personal concern for his people, the Bible never lets us lose sight 
of his majesty. And when we don't have this robust, deeply rooted sense of the greatness of God, there's a kind of casual and indifferent attitude that we have when we come into his presence. We come into his presence as though he were a peer, an equal, and not almighty God. Sometimes we see this in the way we pray. Hey, God, let me have a good day today. Thanks. No, it's good to ask for God's blessing on your day. But we're so casual. We're so indifferent because we have no sense of what we're doing. We are entering the throne room of God Almighty. And we should approach that throne room with a sense of awe, like Habakkuk. There's rottenness in my bones. In his presence, even archangels have to cover their face because he's so majestic. We? God, help me today, thanks. Do you see the discrepancy? you see the problem? We have to recover a sense of how awesome, majestic, great, and glorious is. He is incomparably greater than we are, exalted. His ways are not our ways. His wisdom far surpasses our wisdom. His power is beyond challenge. And all of the highest and best and most exalted things in creation can't compare with him. When we see that, we're going to approach God with a combination of solemn fear and love. Uh, and I want to be clear that the, the, the fear of God that the Bible advocates is not fundamentally a fear resulting from dread of God's judgment. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should fear, you should dread the judgment of God on your sin. God will punish wickedness. And so there is a fear, if you don't know Jesus, arising from God's holy opposition to sin. But if we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the wrath of God, His judgment on sin, has been completely satisfied at the cross. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have passed from death to life. And so we don't fear God because we tremble at His wrath. No, we fear the Lord in the sense that when we are in his presence, we are aware of how exalted and majestic he is. And so we tremble with a joyful, holy, reverent fear. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, captures this well. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There should be intimacy, love, delight, but also reverence, a sense of awe. Does that characterize how you approach God? Is that your vision of God? Uh, one of the best illustrations of this counterintuitive mingling of emotions comes from Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, which I heartily recommend. Uh, there is, so the story is all about talking animals, and there's a scene where mole and rat come into the presence of the sacred, of the holy, the other. And this is their experience. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. Rat, he found the breath to whisper, shaking. 
Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never. Never. And yet, and yet, oh mole, I am afraid. It's that combination of unutterable love when we see God with the sense that, and yet, I am afraid. That's the biblical vision of the fear of the Lord. And if you don't have that sense of God's majesty, prayer and the work of Christ just won't have any gravitas, won't have any weight for you. The work of Christ is especially precious when we see that that's the God that he has given us access to. How do we recover from our reverence deficit? Well, the first thing we need to do is to confess it and say, Lord, my thoughts of you are far too small. Teach me the fear of the Lord. And we need to acknowledge two twin truths, that God is our Father who loves us, but he's also the Almighty above us. And both of those realities need to be burning in our hearts. He's our Father who loves us, and he's the Almighty above us. If you don't want to fear people and fear circumstances, fear the Lord. Second thing to notice about Habakkuk's response is his commitment uh, to trusting in the Lord to fulfill his promise, to, to wait patiently for the Lord to act. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, I want you to notice that there's been a change in the prophet from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. The book begins, chapter 1, verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? There's a, a nuance of impatience, isn't there? Lord, there's justice everywhere. How long? No, notice the shift. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. What's happened? How did he go from, Lord, how long, to I will quietly wait? Well, at the heart of it is he has seen the majesty of God. And all of that internal chafing and restlessness, all of it's been quieted by the glory of God. He is able to endure in hard times because he knows that the Lord will act. This terrible situation that is about to happen, the Babylonians are going to come to Jerusalem. They will sack the holy city. God's people will be deported. Darkness will cover all. Mordor will seem to have won, if you're Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, but here's the crucial thing. That's not the last word. There's a reversal coming on the other side of it. God will act to rescue his people and punish the wicked, and so he will wait. He will wait quietly. Now, what makes suffering and hardship intolerable is the belief that it will always be so. When you see no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel, and you just feel like this present misery will go on forever, it's difficult to endure. If you've got a terrible boss, but he's only going to be at the company another six months, you endure. There's an end in sight. If the, if the boss has no plans to retire anytime soon, you start to look around for other options, right? Uh, knowing that there's an end in sight helps us to endure. Now, Habakkuk was looking forward to the day when the Babylonians, their cruel empire, would be punished and God's people would be rescued. But he expected that God would act then on the basis of his past actions with Israel. Just as he poured out judgment on the Egyptians, rescued Israel, he would act again with the Babylonians. And we need to understand that as Christians, this light of the coming of Jesus Christ have an even better and higher hope, and that's the second coming of Jesus. Just as God has acted in history to pour out judgments on the nations like Babylon, those judgments are themselves a pattern of the ultimate, final, full judgment that is coming at the end of history. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming back in glory and splendor at the end of the age. 
we will stand in awe. And on that day, there will be relief for the people of God and judgment on those who oppose God and reject him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What that means is this present evil age, this present darkness is passing away. The horrors of this life won't carry on forever. They are going to cease one day when Jesus comes and makes everything right. And that means that we can endure even in the darkest night. It won't always be this way. Christ is coming back. The school year might be difficult, but summer break is around the corner. So we endure. Final thing then to know about Habakkuk's response is that he is committed to rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of the darkness. And this has to be one of the most beautiful, uh, just lovely passages of Scripture, Habakkuk 17 through 19. Uh, I, I want to memorize them. I'm more or less committed to memorizing them. Why, won't you, why don't you join me? And there, that way there'll be some accountability and we can m- make sure we're doing it together. Uh, let me know if you memorize these lovely verses. Uh, let me read them and then we'll say something about them because they're worth rereading. Listen carefully. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So it begins with this image of scarcity and want. The branches are barren. There are no fruit. The uh, crops have all failed. There are no bleeding sheep in the stalls. The stalls are empty. Uh, Not only have the comforts and luxuries of life been taken away, but even the necessities are taken away. And so there's scarcity. Life has been reduced to mere survival. It's like going to Costco and finding all the shelves empty. Horror of horrors. Gas, you can't afford it anymore. Pantry at home, empty. Refrigerator, empty. But what do people characteristically do when this happens? Well, we saw two years ago. We were just a minor pinch that we experienced two years ago when we would show up at the grocery store and rice would sometimes not be there, eggs or milk or chicken. And the characteristic response of many was to worry, be paralyzed with fear, to be hopeless. Look how Habakkuk responds. I will rejoice in the Lord. How? Why? Because Habakkuk understands, and he teaches us today, that to have God is to have everything. Even if you lose everything else, if you have God, you have every reason to sing and rejoice with everything that's in you. If you have every good thing that this earth has to offer, but you don't have God, you have every reason to weep and be sad. God plus nothing equals everything. He is sweeter than all food and more satisfying than food and drink. Uh, He is closer than the nearest companion. His promise, his presence, his provision are better than all the goods of this world. And so even when all other comforts and helps fail in this life, if we have God, we need to be singing and rejoicing even when the night comes. If you have God, you have the one thing that you need, the one thing that makes for real joy. And so you can sing even when the pantries are empty. Unbelief looks at what is lost. Unbelief looks at the job, the career that was lost, the savings account that's been depleted. 
of the things that I can no longer afford to buy, and then it engages in self-pity. Woe is me, sadness, hopelessness, complaining. But faith looks not fundamentally at what has been lost. Faith looks fundamentally at what it possesses in God. I may not have that job anymore. My financial situation may not be what it once was. But what is wealth compared to God? I have the Lord. He is my rock. He is my strength. He is my joy. I have more joy than they have when their wine and grain abound. Psalm 4. So I rejoice. This morning, you're in verse 17. You look at your life and you see barren branches, empty stalls, barrenness, barrenness, barrenness. What you are invited to do is to look up and to remember God. If you have him, if he is your father, if Jesus is your savior, then you can sing with all your heart today. You have the thing that you need. And if this morning you don't have God, if you're far from him, if Jesus is not your savior, then I plead with you, don't continue in your poverty, but trust in Jesus and be enriched with the gift that is God himself. The joy that is in view here in verse 18 uh, is a joy fundamentally anchored in God, but it's also the joy that comes from knowing that no matter what happens, the Lord will strengthen my hands, strengthen my heart to face the horrors of this life. God the Lord is my strength. The idea is whatever we face, whatever horrors we encounter, even when it's the darkest, God will strengthen his people to faithfully endure, glorify him, and endure even cheerfully. We will be resilient and strong as the Lord gives us the strength even in the worst of times. That's the promise. Whatever happens, God's not going to leave and leave you to your own devices. God is going to strengthen your heart. And here's the image. You're going to be like a deer, a hind, a female deer that leaps gracefully from one rock to the other, runs confidently, it doesn't falter, it doesn't fail, it's steady stride, doesn't slip. It's an image of strength, dexterity, in in times of darkness, and and Habakkuk is saying that's how God makes his people. When all, all other helps fail, God strengthens us to be that deer that leaps from rock to rock. God is saying to us, we are not going to be shaken by the storms of life. We are going to be given the strength to be resilient and strong and continue to glorify him in the midst of those storms. There's a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 112, verses 6 through 8. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Do you believe that that's how you can be in affliction because of God? Not just everybody else, but you. As you trust in this majestic God, your heart can be firm in the worst of times. We see it in David's life. David is the great uh, king of Israel. Before he became a king, though, he was a man on the run, chased by Saul. At one particular low point, uh, he and his band of men show up to Ziklag, which was the city he was living in, and it's a smoking ruin. The Amalekites have 
taken his, uh, all the wives, all the children, all the people of Ziklag. They've carted them off into captivity. The city's destroyed. David's men are so furious and bitter with the situation that they contemplate killing him. He's their leader. He's responsible for this. What does David do in this situation? 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David found strength in that very dire, nightmarish moment in God. And what God did for David, he'll do for you. He will strengthen you to face the worst moments of life in a way that honors him and keeps you from giving way to hopelessness and despair. Here's a reason to rejoice. Whatever comes, God's at our side. He will strengthen us. And that means we don't need to be caught up with anxiety about the future and what will happen or not happen to us. We can have the freedom to focus on present responsibilities. We can work and we can parent and we can get to know our neighbors and share Jesus with others and uh, we can pray and we can read and do the things God has called us to do, whatever those are. Uh, We can do them cheerfully with our whole heart because we know that the future is in his hands and whatever comes will strengthen us. That's a reason to rejoice. Paul said, Paul captures essentially the same thought in Romans chapter 8. He says, I, you know, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, nor anything, 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 will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is this boundless confidence that because we have Jesus, it will be well with us. It's a reason to rejoice. That's what makes you firm in hardship. Whatever comes, Jesus is there. He'll keep me from being shaken and destroyed. He is my rock. So even when the pantries are barren, I will sing the praises of God because that's who he is. That's what faith looks like in the majesty and power of God. It produces a firmness and resolve in even the worst of times. May God grant that all of us would know and taste that more and more. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you are incomparable. And I suspect that as a congregation and as individuals, we need to grow in the fear of the Lord. This is a deficit. This is what we need. We pray that through your word and spirit, you would cause us to stand in awe of you as Habakkuk did, as so many in scripture did. Please, Father, teach us to fear you that we would not fear men or fear the dire circumstances of this life. Amen.